Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Banal with BanalofAmerica.com's one and only audio series, Banal of America Audio, Season 1. Welcome back. This is the October 29th edition. Little in-house notes before we kick it off. Thank you out there to everybody who's trying out the new streaming audio at BanalofAmerica.com. You can listen to the audio here and not have to download the MP3s. You can listen to it streaming, listen to it at work. If you get the dial up, you can check it out now. Hopefully this will open up a wide new avenue of listening options for the BanalofAmerica.com, Banal of America Audio listeners. And thanks out there to all the great websites that have been promoting Banal of America Audio and helping us out and get the word out here. This week we have Peter Robbins. Here's a little bit about Peter Robbins for you who are unfamiliar with him. He's been involved in UFO studies for more than 25 years as a researcher, investigator, writer, lecturer, activist, and author. He's a board member of the Bud Hopkins Intruders Foundation and is co-author of the British bestseller Left at East Gate, a first-hand account of the Bentwaters-Woodbridge UFO incident, its cover-up and investigation. He's a current contributor to Phenomena Magazine, UFO Magazine, UFO Report, Japan, Fate Magazine, and a host of other publications and websites. Peter has lectured extensively both in the United States and abroad, including dozens of talks throughout the United Kingdom. Venues have included local, national, and international conferences, as well as presentations for organizations, seminars, private groups, public, private, and secondary schools, universities, libraries, scientific organizations, educational foundations, and Cambridge Hospital in Boston under the sponsorship of the late Pulitzer Prize winner Dr. John Mack. His lecture topics have included, but not been limited to, the UK's RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge UFO incident, the suppression of UFO information by the American and British governments, James Forrestal, first Secretary of Defense and early casualty of UFO secrecy, the emergence of the national security state, Dr. Wilhelm Reich in UFOs, the UFO abduction phenomenon, the crop circle phenomenon, and the media in UFOs. So as you can see, Peter is well-versed in a host of UFO-related topics. He's been in the field for a very long time. So I was totally psyched when we got the opportunity to speak with him and bring him to the BanalofAmerica.com visitors and the Banal of America audio listeners. What's key here also is that we are quickly approaching the 25th anniversary of the RAF Bentwaters Woodbridge incident. You're going to be hearing a lot more about the RAF Bentwaters incident. He's sent along post-interview some dates to note, and that is that the updated edition of Left at Eastgate will be available around December 1st. And on December 17th, the History Channel will be premiering a brand new documentary that both he and Larry Warren were consultants on. Also, he notes that the Sci-Fi Channel will be rebroadcasting the documentary UFO Invasion at Rendlesham on December 1st at 1 p.m. Eastern. And hopefully it will be running it several more times throughout the month as we get closer to the anniversary of the Rendlesham Forest incident that last week in December. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was conducted on September 5th, 2005. Peter Robbins, Part 102, on Banal of America Audio, Season 1. Um, all right, well, we'll just, uh, we'll just get going then. Yep, hit me with your best shot. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, first of all, let me just give a little introduction to uh, Peter Robbins here. There's more information on the website, I'm sure. Uh, he's the author of Left and East Gate. That's probably what he's most famous for. It's a fantastic book. I just finished it this past week. Um, I really loved it. It's it's a it's almost like a story within a story. It's the story of Larry Warren's amazing UFO experience. Um, 
while he was on stationed in England, and then it sort of turns into the story of the writing of the book, yeah. and the characters that come along, and the, all the just the amazing saga of trying to get this story of Larry's experience from from the the forest of Rendlesham all the way to the bookstores of uh, your average person. So I think uh, yeah, that was that was really uh, it's it's human. Human drama at its finest. I think uh, anyone who follows the ufology field will be interested in seeing what really goes on in that sort of environment where someone has a story to tell and, and the saga it takes to try and get it out there and all the people that put walls up and trying to find the various witnesses and all the things that go along with it. So, I'm here with Peter Robbins, and also I wanted to mention that Peter Robbins was one of the nicest people I ever met at the X-Conference 2004. Uh, I was really just a newcomer to the UFO field sort of a fanboy, but of all the people I met, Peter Robbins was like the nicest and just took me under his wing and hung out with me all Sunday night on the last night there, and that was really cool, and I'll always appreciate that, so Peter Robbins, and he's probably, of all the people I talk to in ufology, everyone says great things about Peter Robbins, and I just mention him casually, they're like, oh, Peter Robbins, I love that guy, <laughs> so you're very well spoken of, and here's uh, Peter Robbins, thank you so much for the chance to speak with you about this great book and all your other awesome work. Well, Tim, it's a pleasure, and thank you for your kind thoughts and um, uh, very perceptive kind of analysis of the book. It really is a story within a story, and, you know, although we're all obviously uh, one of the things we have in common is a tremendous curiosity about these other intelligences, whatever they may be, as you now know from reading the book, um, we discuss in as much depth as we can uh, Larry's experience, what we make of it, but um, to the frustration of some readers, um, the book is really not about, you know, aliens and flying saucers. It's a book about human beings, often under stress, and other human beings who are applying the stress. Um, essentially, it's a book about what people in positions of power in intelligence and military are willing to do, or the lengths they're willing to go to, to um, apply pressure so that our government, our intelligence service, our military are not embarrassed because of these um, highly classified things. All right, so before uh, you even got involved with the book, why don't you yeah. give me a little bit of background on, because um, you were in the ufology field for a while before Larry approached you to write the book, so like before you got into the book, like let's save how you actually got into the book for later when we get into that, uh -huh. but, but your background before this whole thing happened with you? Well, um, my background is primarily in the arts. Um, I had always wanted to uh, be a painter. It's what I studied in uh, university and then transferred to and graduated from the School of Arts in New York City. Uh, I taught painting there for quite a number of years, uh, also taught at a number of private schools and other institutions. Um, in an ironic way, that took me into the world of the theater, where I still work uh, part-time in theatrical management in New York City, as well as working with uh, uh, a man I consider one of the finest directors and the finest acting coach I've ever worked with. That's a, an old friend of mine named John Strasberg, uh, the last name of which may be somewhat familiar to some of your listeners, because John's dad was Lee Strasberg, arguably the most important acting coach of the 20th century. Um, my interest in, in UFOs um, springs from about, well, the mid-70s. Um, 
I got into it with something of a vengeance and a certain amount of resentment. Um, I'm proud of the work I've done in the field. I'm, I'm very proud of the book uh, that you've just finished and my continuing contributions, but I've never been able to say I love it. Um, I love theater. I love the arts. Um, flat out, this is an obsession and um, something I do because I think it's important. Um, maybe something that I can do a little better than some of my other colleagues is and present some of this material, which granted sounds extremely loopy to uh, the uninitiated or far out or kind of goofy, um, in a way where um, it can be taken more seriously. Uh, I consider myself um, a very analytical person. I'm certainly spiritual, but I'm not mystical. Um, I had the great good fortune getting into the field to have three extremely different and distinct mentors. Um, the best known, of course, is Bud Hopkins, who is a name that will be familiar to quite a number of uh, your listeners. Um, Bud is certainly, well, he's the best known figure in ufology since the death of Alan Hynek. And uh, the father of the entire field of the abduction phenomena. Um, He's also a very fine painter, and we connected up early on in both of our interests in the subject. In fact, uh, I'm always proud to say we both did our very first UFO presentations together, uh, believe it or not, at the School of Visual Arts um, when I was a faculty member there. Um, but before Bud, uh, my first real mentor in the field was um, a gentleman who I kind of thought of as my ufological grandfather. Um, Coleman von Kavetsky, when I met him, was already in his 70s, and, um, well, Coleman had been a staff officer in the Royal Hungarian Army uh, during World War II in charge of uh, photo education and photo analysis for the Hungarian military. Uh, so he had a, a very pragmatic eye, and uh, when he emigrated to the States in the early 50s, he arrived literally within months of the now-famous um, UFO sightings over the Capitol in 1951 or 52, as I recall, and got right into the work from there. Um, he had worked as a consultant for some years to uh, the Attorney General of the United Nations, and when I met him, uh, he took me under his wing in the mid-70s, later 70s, uh, my first real job of any significance in the UFO field was working as a research assistant and editor uh, on a paper that was presented at the United Nations at their open UFO hearings in November of 1978. Um, my last mentor, and in some ways um, the most impacting one in terms of the way that I investigate things, was... Um, a guy named Pete Mazzola. Pete was a bigger-than-life New York City police officer. He was actually a, a detective sergeant in the New York City Police Department. A tough, no-nonsense guy, heart of gold, but um, a guy out of a Kojak episode. He was really all cop and an ace UFO investigator. He had had a profound uh, UFO sighting while serving in combat in Vietnam, one of the best introductory stories I had ever heard and somebody who didn't spin anything. And he, um, when he got into the field, you know, he was a police investigator and that's how he investigated UFO studies until his death. 
and um, I like to think I'm following in a suit as far as investigative techniques. Um, so that was pretty much in the 70s. Um, I started to well, basically do what a lot of us do, and you know, you're certainly a good example. Once your interest is captured, uh, you begin to read. You try to sort out the wheat from the chaff. You try to seek out more grounded and uh, well-informed and rational people, or so we do our best to perceive, <laughs> rather than, you know, goofballs and mystics and semi-lunatics or true believers as opposed to folks that take nothing at face value, um, don't jump to conclusions, and um, continued to work, ultimately started to, you know, write my own articles, um, began to submit them to various publications, began to get them published. Um, I've never been a shrinking violet in front of a crowd. I've, um, you know, um, I always think it's kind of ironic that when you read studies of fears of average Americans, um, the fear of public speaking is usually right next to the fear of death, <laughs> really. And um, I'm a bit of a ham, but um, I use my time in the public eye as responsibly as I can. And so it was a pretty natural thing for me to um, take my writing and move into the realm of presentations and conferences and where, really wherever I could get speaking dates. And I still am open to almost any venues from small organizations, libraries, um, non-UFO related groups that feel they might be interested in the subject to, of course, uh, MUFON and Bufora and uh, so many of the wonderful grassroots organizations in this country and uh, really around the world. And um, frankly, I was about 12 years into the field when um, Larry and I really connected and this project started to uh, actualize. All right. Wow. That's, that's a lot of stuff. I, I feel like I know you so much better now. <laughs> wow. Um, well, let's just jump right to the book before I, you know, I would, I would, I'll wait until sometime when I see you. I'll, I'll pick your brain about all this back sure. stuff. Um, uh, for the people who don't know really the story of the Ben Waters incident, let's yeah. give them a thumbnail sketch of what happened. First, okay. let me try and present it. Yeah. A bare bones version. And you Very sort good. Of flesh it out a little bit. Uh huh. All right. This is the Ben Waters uh, Air Force Base, it's American Air Base, on uh, in Britain, and Sometime after Christmas, 81? Uh, 80. 80, okay. Mm -hmm. um, there was a UFO incident on one night. Then there was another one on the second night, a slight escalation. I'm a little vague on the second night. Uh -huh. And then on the third night was the big night. Yeah. When um, the, the UFO landed, we think, you know, before this is the incident. Yeah. And um, Larry Warren, who is your co-author, was yeah. among um, among the, uh, the security troops who who uh, were sent there. Yes. And at that point, uh, Larry got pretty close to the, to the craft, and uh, it, it landed. And um, the, there was quite a bit, of, quite a few people there. It seemed uh, it was very chaotic. The, the um, uh, trying to get a grasp on the situation that was going on there, reading it was. You really want to like put yourself there. It sounds very chaotic. And then, um, some uh, someone in the higher command, 
got stepped forward, and, and there was some sort of communication between him and the craft or the beings. I wasn't sure if they were in the craft or that was, you know. And um, and then uh, I think Larry Warren blacked out there, I'm pretty sure, or something happened after that. And uh, then Larry had this whole other adventure that went on after that. But that's pretty much the incident in and Bat Wars was a UFO landing as a culmination of three nights. Um, I probably did too vague of a description of it, but that it's a good bare bones. Um, <laughs> trying to recall it all, and, uh, and 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 you really have to. I would really love to check it out someday because you kind of have to see the uh, the scene of the incident to really yeah. get it. And it's in the middle of the night. Yeah. And um, oh, it just sounds terrifying. I I, I imagine it was, and. Um, I'll backtrack a bit and bring us into it with a little more detail. Um, Thanks. No, you did fine. Um, Larry um, joined the Air Force, uh, I think, for all the right reasons, all the old-fashioned reasons that young men have gone into the service for several thousand years. Uh, see the world, wear a uniform, carry a weapon, meet women in other countries. You know, um, for him, he was a big rock and roll fan, uh, very knowledgeable about popular music. Is worked in the field on and off for years in um, uh, promotion and um, publicity positions, has a tremendous circle of friends who are remarkably well-known popular musicians. But at the time, coming out of high school, um, like so many in the late 70s, big fan of the English bands, uh, certainly the Beatles, uh, the Who, and you know, the things that inform important decisions in life can seem a bit flighty on the surface. Um, Larry liked the idea of going to England. He had done a, a high school year there. He was quite uh, in love with many things about the country. Um, ultimately, um, you know, it was a chance to see a lot of these bands live and, all right, you know, asked to be assigned to England, and he was. Did his basic training um, in Lackland in Texas. And that's where the story sort of jumps off the standard, uh, besides all the normal training. And his uh, training was focused on two specialty areas. One was anti-terrorism. And although this was the late 70s and well before the gleam in Al-Qaeda's eye, um, Irish terrorism was more reality there than not. It was the height of the Cold War as well. He was also specifically trained to work around nuclear ordnance. Um, that understood. The training veered off for him and a number of other men when they were brought through a specific series of other tests and uh, procedures, um, which looking back on it are very non-standard, asked if they had ever had the UFO experience, uh, paranormal experiences, and Larry had. Um, ultimately, in December um, of 1980, the beginning of December, he is assigned uh, to a flight, uh, a shift, uh, as a security police officer uh, on the Bentwaters base and completed his training on the job. Um, for the record, just to sort of locate this in terms of popular culture history, um, I think he went on shift on December 2nd. And December 8th, sadly, was uh, the day that John Lennon was shot to death in New York. Um, that following weekend, he and many of his base colleagues went to London for a huge memorial and then went back and continued uh, on their jobs. Um, the Bentwaters incident, also to avoid any um, confusion, um, 
it's referred to as the Bent Waters Incident, the Bent Waters Woodbridge UFO Incident, uh, and in England better known as the Rendlesham Forest Incident, uh, because that particular forest abuts uh, two, uh, or what were two highly secured and very important uh, NATO bases in the United Kingdom at the time, RAF Bent Waters, uh, at least to the Americans, and RAF Woodbridge, about six miles away with a good-sized American contingent on it. Um, the incident, the Bentwaters incident itself, is actually, as Tim has just said, um, more or less a series of events that took place on three consecutive nights between Christmas and New Year's. Um, some of the high points are on the very first night, unknowns, uh, lights uh, in the night sky um, that were giving radar readings that were uh, certainly visible from the ground by troops and local folks, uh, were seen coming in over this twin base area. And a number of them came in over the weapons storage area. And that's euphemism, well, euphemism essentially for um, the nuclear weapons storage area. Um, to just give a, a bit of historical accuracy here, um, we had something like 350,000 kilograms, um, kilotons, what am I saying, 350,000 kilotons of nuclear ordnance um, housed underneath this twin base complex two years before our treaty with the United Kingdom allowed us to have nuclear ordnance in the United Kingdom. So we not only have a major treaty violation as part of the backstory here, but um, a potentially very disastrous one. Uh, also, that week, late December 1980, if you go to any major newspaper and go to the international section, the big story was this potential uprising. Um, a pro-democracy movement had taken hold in Poland's Gdansk shipyard under uh, essentially the leadership of a remarkably dynamic and inspired man who was an electrician named Lech Walesa, who um, absolutely radicalized a good part of the Polish population uh, to the possibilities of a democratic Poland. Um, so there was a great deal of tension in Poland at the time. Uh, what you and I and our parents and anybody else reading the paper was not aware of in late December 1980 because it was classified, is that the Soviets have massed over 100,000 crack troops right on their southern border with Poland and had this uh, pro-democracy event gotten out of the Soviets' control, they were prepared to roll into Poland and restore order. Uh, NATO, being fully aware of this, had put every single NATO base in the United Kingdom and Europe on a full red alert. Red is one step below black, and black is war. Had they rolled, um, we would have possibly seen the beginning of World War III. Almost all of the fighter aircraft on Bent Waters were no longer there. They were already in West Germany, what we call forward operating locations, waiting for orders to potentially fly um, against the Soviet Union. So. With this uh, nuclear, um, well, this nuclear cover-up going on, as well as the fact that there was um, a potentially disastrous international situation hanging overhead, 
there was already plenty of tension when these unknowns came in over this very strategic pair of NATO bases. Um, two major uh, events defined the first night. One was the fact that some of these craft, because I don't know what else to call them, they were real machines, uh, apparently metallic and certainly under intelligent control, shot down beams of light into the weapons storage area. And somehow, I couldn't begin to explain the physics because I have no idea how it works. It's not my area. But these beams of light, which this was before you had little handheld laser pointers by quite some years. Um, and being England, a fairly healthy moisture content in the air, you know, billions of little water droplets, you could actually see these lines of light going from these things down to the ground. Somehow, somehow, they penetrated these hardened bunkers, uh, alternating layers of earth, concrete, and steel, and made their way down these beams of light to the nuclear ordnance. And in the very chilling words of the then deputy base commander, who told myself and Larry in a rather charged meeting uh, that I had waited years for um, in a shopping mall directly across the street from the Pentagon, and you've read the transcript of that conversation now, um, that somehow these beams of light, uh, what was his wonderful phrase in militaries, adversely affected the ordinance, which is very chilling when you're talking about 350,000 kilotons of nuclear weaponry. Uh, obviously, they didn't affect it adversely in detonation, but they seemed to screw up the mechanisms. More than that, I don't know, but I heard that directly from the former deputy base commander. Um, that is one series of events on the first night. The other was the sister base about six miles away. Some of the um, uh, law enforcement cops um, in the Air Force, you have two types of police officers. You've got the security cops, who are the equivalent of paramilitary, and the LEs, law enforcement guys, who are more the equivalent of, you know, your boys in blue. Uh, they observed a light going down in the woods, and although there was no impact, no fire, no explosion, they were prudent and um, reported it as though it might be a downed plane and requested uh, from the East Gate, where they had observed it, of Woodbridge uh, permission uh, to go and investigate. And four security cops did just that. They headed off into the woods. And ultimately, what they encountered there was something from a Spielberg movie or a Twilight Zone episode. It was a triangular machine, um, approximately equilateral triangle, approximately seven feet on a side. Uh, about three meters. Um, it was black, extremely glossy, almost like black glass. It was moving, more or less meandering through the woods, you know, maneuvering around trees, nice as you please, at about chest height. And the men came upon it and were quite shocked. They got close enough to be able to actually see writing, uh, not decipherable, hieroglyphic. Uh, symbolism um, on the machine. Uh, one of the men, uh, to my best information, and that in this case is from one of the other witnesses, uh, drew a weapon on it. He drew his sidearm uh, and then impulsively jumped on it and it went 
10 meters or so before he let go. That was John Burroughs. Um, one of the men uh, went missing that night, um, and he was gone for some time. Um, another of the men, Jim Penniston, uh, tried to record it as quickly as he could, drawing you know some pictures in his notebook as he stood there. Uh, Jim was uh, a very important part of a recent, well, about two years now, uh, a good documentary on the subject made by the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, which is still in rotation and I'm sure will be reshown in December, which will be the 25th anniversary of the incident. And uh, the men have very incomplete memories of the evening. There is a possibility of abduction, but it was hours before they came out of the woods with incomplete memories and very, very shaken up. Uh, so that was part of the first night. The second night, there were a number of overflights, again, over the Twin Base Complex and the Went Rendlesham Forest. Um, things as small as dots of light that moved erratically, other things that were quite articulated disks, uh, and a number of them came down around the twin bases. Uh, and I mean that actually, they came down through the trees, uh, in some cases tearing out uh, branch and leaf forest cover, uh, rudely sort of bumping up against trees and ripping out parts of bark. Uh, several of them settled into the surrounding countryside. And uh, the one that's best known, the one that Colonel Halt and his men documented later, um, had left three circular impressions in the soil. Uh, they were equilateral. Um, pressure tests later done suggest that whatever sat there may well have weighed several tons, or if it was a fabrication, somebody was able to mimic that. Um, the impressions in the soil, which I stress were absolutely circular, uh, as well as where tree bark had been ripped uh, or forest canopy had been removed. Um, upon measurement, registered beta and gamma background radiation counts in excess of 10 times the norm in the area. Uh, Colonel Halt, the deputy base commander, who was very skeptical about the first night's uh, sightings, um, was informed of this um, at a party. And let's remember, again, this is right between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, a lot of the officers were attending parties uh, in this period of time. Um, he was told by um, whoever it was that reported to him, I forget, uh, that they were back. And he went back to um, his residence first and changed into more appropriate field clothing, put his microcassette recorder in his pocket, and took a small team cat out and investigate. His intention, as he made very clear to Larry and I when we did meet, and he's been on record about since, um, was not to document this, but to um, expose it as nonsense. And um, that is how he felt until they started coming in directly over them. Um, there is a now, in ufology, a very famous tape recording. It runs 16 or 17 minutes. And it is a segment, from what I understand, through uh, Mr. Hall, uh, um, is a full tape uh, that runs several hours that nobody I know except for him has ever heard. But there is no question in our minds that this is a fully authentic recording of American military personnel under tremendous stress, as in one case, one of these things is coming through the woods very much toward them. Uh, with a pulsating light on it, and you hear 
the absolute tension in the voices. This is not, you know, a bunch of guys goofing around. It's anything but. Um, but they took plaster castings of those impressions, uh, made their measurements, reported in. And um, second night also, there, some of the lights in the night sky were moving in a very, very regulated way, uh, mimicking what one person said was like a, a grid search, had a plane gone down, and you had you know choppers in the sky going back and forth looking in a programmed way for a crash scene. Anyway, over these first two nights, my co-author um, was on leave in Germany. Met a girl in Germany, gone back to Germany. Uh, reported back uh, the third morning. Uh, the base was on a full alert. There is a uh, photograph that we have in the book of the uh, main base entrance with a sign that says alert. That was the status. Um, when you are in a position where you're going to be put on um, a guard duty um, at an American military base, I'm sure other militaries as well, you are checked out beforehand. Um, and especially in light of the fact that certain uh, debunkers and naysayers have had the gall to suggest that some of these men were blowing weed in the woods and, you know, kind of stoned and, you know, that's what happened. Um, Everybody was carrying a fully loaded automatic weapon. These men were checked out, and if they had had a beer that morning, if they had taken a cold pill, they were excused from duty. You had to be straight as an arrow, and they all were. Um, again, bearing in mind that we didn't know whether or not we'd be going to war within 24 hours with the Russians, um, every single outpost on the Bentwaters perimeter, I don't know about Woodbridge, I'm imagining it was much the same, was manned. And Larry had been posted to uh, probably the most remote um, part of the uh, perimeter, a, uh, a small posting called Perimeter Post 18, also a photo of that in the book. And this is already fairly late at night. He has his... Um, M16, he has a Motorola radio, and he's by himself. He has not heard anything about the previous two nights. Some have suggested, you know, there were rumors sweeping the base. Men were told to be quiet about it, and they were. Uh, but that evening, he heard men further down the line, several miles down, making, you know, nervous observations and silly jokes about the lights they were seeing in the night sky. The lights were fairly close to the horizon, so Larry was not able to see them from where he was. But the chatter that he was hearing on the Motorola was interrupted by a more senior personnel who told him to pipe down and get off the frequency. This is not a joking matter. And shortly after this, um, he and other men, uh, certainly he was radioed and told to close down his posting, that he would be picked up shortly by military vehicle and brought on to another assignment. Soon after, an American Air Force uh, vehicle, a pickup truck, driven by Lieutenant Bruce England, containing a number of men, including Sergeant Adrian Bastinza, who ultimately would stand next to him during the event, um, were picked up at their postings, and they and other vehicles converged at the base motor pool. Uh, as I recall, it's now probably close to midnight um, or after. And there's a unusual amount of activity at the motor pool. Um, many vehicles are having what we call light alls hooked up to them, which are kind of the civilian equivalent 
of um, what we think of as big Hollywood premiere lights. Uh, these ones are gas-operated. Uh, the tanks were all topped off. The generators were checked. And uh, the vehicles then came into a cordon, uh, all um, came into line together um, at the base entrance, and then on a command rolled out into the English countryside. Now, um, by comparison uh, to the nuclear ordinance problem, um, this would be considered a minor treaty via variation, uh, violation, but in fact it was not minor. Um, all of these men were fully armed with loaded automatic weapons, and that's all right when you're on base. All of a sudden you are in your host country and private land, and that is not all right. However, this caravan um, headed off uh, down the road and ultimately um, went past um, RAF Woodbridge, uh, five, six miles away, where they were stopped by a military policeman in the road. Uh, and in front of Larry's vehicle was a small civilian Ford Cortina. It was white, and it had a woman and I believe a sleeping child in it. They were close enough to hear um, the military uh, person telling the woman that they were having to hold them up for a bit because they had found some unexploded ordnance and were having to remove it before allowing traffic through. Now, that might sound like a load of nonsense um, in most places. It's rather extraordinary claim. But you have to remember, this is the exact location over which the Battle of Britain was fought in 1940. And now, well, 65 years later, they're still occasionally pulling unexploded ordnance out of uh, the forest or, you know, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, after a while, they were told to continue, and uh, the civilian did. The military cop told our guys to go past the East Gate entrance of RAF Woodbridge and then make their left after the East Gate Road onto a logging road and go up that road, which they did, quarter, half a mile. Uh, the vehicles pulled into a, um, a rather cleared circular area. This is um, uh, in the forest. And uh, one by one, the vehicles pulled up. The men disembarked. And then an armorer's vehicle, um, which really was not much more than another pickup truck with racks welded on the back pulled up. Um, then the weapons were collected. The men were broken into three-men groups. Each group got a Motorola radio, and the men were told to head off in that direction and investigate the disturbance, which they did. Um, the first sign that something was very non-standard happened uh, as they headed through the woods and um, experienced a tremendous um, static electricity charge in the air. Um, we're most familiar with it as kids from you know rubbing a balloon on your sleeve and then it'll stick to you, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it'll raise the hair on your arm. Uh, let's remember here that most of these guys, although they were very highly trained military personnel, were young guys. They were 18, 19, 20 years old. And accordingly, uh, most of them had good thick heads of hair. Uh, this was a group that did not wear helmets. They wore berets, as you remember. And um, the static electricity charge in the air was so ferocious that it was pushing the berets off their heads, which is extremely memorable um, thing. Facts, uh, allegations like that stick in my mind more than often very outlandish uh, claims. Uh, Larry, uh, as they continued on, heard a man 
client, and they came upon uh, a uh, fellow uh, security cop who had broken down and was sobbing, and kind of curled up with his back to a stump, being comforted calm by uh, another personnel. They continued into the woods and saw a glow in the distance, and ultimately that glow revealed itself to be in a farmer's field, which is um, called Cable Green. It's a private farmer's field. Uh, you'll find it on any English survey map of that area. And as they got to the point where the forest stopped and the field began, they could see 50, 60 feet out in the field um, a illuminated ground fog. Now, any of us that have ever watched a nice old Sherlock Holmes movie um, know, you know, fogs are a nice romantic aspect of uh, England. This was not a normal ground fog. It was perfectly circular, um, 40 or 50 feet across, as I recall. Um, it was self-illuminated like a giant aspirin tablet on the ground, and I mean self-illuminated. Uh, they were bringing these lidols out to the field, but none of them would work. Uh, in the meantime, the Motorola radios were fritzing out. The flashlights were refusing to operate practically. There was a problem. There was no moon that night. They were far enough away from the base that there was literally no ambient light. The only light was at the far end of the field, the little farmer's house, and the lights were on, on the second floor there, but certainly nothing that could illuminate this ground fog. Uh, the men were then ordered to surround this ground fog. Non-standard, but, you know, it was the order. Anyway, um, after a while of just standing their positions, again, everybody is now disarmed, they observed coming in really slowly um, a reddish light coming in from the direction of the North Sea. And at this point, we're only five or six miles from the coast. And they watched it as it came in directly over the field and then directly over the ground fog and then, as has been best described to me, exploded without a sound in a flash of light that was so blinding that it was described as magnesium-like. So much so that um, I can tell you for a fact, and this is not from copies, this is from some of the few original Air Force records of Larry's that we have, um, that the flash of light was so ferocious that it burned the retinas of my co-author's eyes. I would deduce that other men were so affected, but I don't have their medical records, so I cannot absolutely state that. And, you know, as we remember from the old flashbulb days, if you ever, you know, got a close-up flash picture, it can take a couple of seconds for your eyes to readjust to the dark. And when their eyes did, sitting in this ground fog on some kind of metal structure, landing apparatus, or whatever you want to call it, was now a machine of wholly undetermined origin. At this point, a number of men simply ran off. And I might well have been among them. Um, the fact is that most of them held their mark. It is a military situation, and they are well-trained. And they held their mark. Um, Larry and Adrian Bastinza, sergeant, who was right next to him, were within 15 to 20 feet of this thing. Um, it was self-illuminated, and the surface was um, playing tricks with their sense of vision. Um, 
I've had it described to me as sort of shifting mother of pearl, that you could see clearer if you sort of tilted your head and looked peripherally at it rather than right at it. And just to add to the madness, um, it was playing games with the shadows of the men that surrounded it. Um, Larry observed that if you moved, your shadow moved on the surface of the craft, but a second, two seconds or so afterwards, which of course is impossible, but what's just as impossible or more impossible is the fact that there were no lights behind them. So none of this made real sense. I think it's also fair to say that there's a certain amount of shock going on at this point. Um, but again, it's a military situation and the men held their marks. Uh, after a prolonged period of time, Larry and Adrian, I expect other men next to them, saw a glow coming from the far side of the craft, which was not described to me in any way like anything I've ever seen popularized in fiction or reports that we've gotten of other, you know, alleged machines from places unknown. Um, you could make out fittings and, you know, like bolts, but again, best observed diagonally, uh, peripherally, rather than straight on. Um, it had a, a reddish, uh, very pronounced light at the top and tapered down to a bank of cobalt blue lights at the bottom. And they observed a glow coming from the far side, and the glow began to move. And it started to come around and then cleared the end of the craft to a point where the glow, they could now make it out more clearly without any obstruction. And as the glow sort of diminished, they could make out three distinct shapes within the glow. Um, they were, for lack of a more descriptive word, beings. They were humanoid in appearance. They had, you know, torsos and arms and legs and heads, but they were not human. They were not the archetypical ubiquitous greys that everybody now knows and are part of popular culture, uh, as well as uh, form the bulk of most authentic reportings of, you know, non-human characters that we get in UFO sightings. And they were just there. Um, they were about four feet tall. They were stocky. Um, they had the um, often reported extremely large, proportionally deep black eyes. Um, and if there was nose or mouth, you couldn't really make it out. Um, they seemed to be in a one-piece kind of, you know, fitting garment. And just to make it, you know, if that's not enough, they were floating about a foot off the ground and slightly translucent. Um, again, the men held their ground, and there were no um, threats. Um, if you remember back to one of my favorite, and certainly one of the great kings of the B science fiction movies, The Day the Earth Stood Still, and still one of the best. Um, there is that sequence where, you know, the UFO lands across the street from the Capitol building and uh, Michael Rennie playing the um, alien gets out and uh, as he's pulling out a device that he's going to present to the president, he's surrounded by troops aiming M1s at him and somebody pulls a trigger and he's shot. And it does make you think that if these men had been armed, maybe something would have happened um, that could have resulted in um, another level of problem. But they were not armed. 
And these beings just floated there. The men just stood their ground. And then about this point, as you mentioned, a more senior personnel, and we maintain and always have, that that was um, then um, the base wing commander, uh, Colonel Gordon Williams, in evening clothes coming from a party, uh, stepped through the cordon of men, also unarmed, and he's a big guy, 6'2", 6'3", um, and stopped 10 or so feet from these beings and looked down at them, and they looked up at him. And communication is a word that is used, and I think because we don't know what else to say about this. Um, when you look in someone's eyes, you're communicating. The fact is uh, standard psychological uh, texts usually underscore the fact that 70 or so percent of all human communication is nonverbal, body language, eye contact, what have you. So in that sense, I guess there was communication, but there was no physical contact, there was no words, there was no exchange of things, and uh, Colonel Williams, who interestingly um, has come forward now, um, fully retired as a two-star general some years ago, uh, and um, I don't know whether he thinks this is funny, but he has made it very clear that he will neither confirm nor deny his involvement, where it would be very easy to just say, no, I wasn't there. He doesn't do that. And um, Larry and Adrian were ordered to go in for a closer look, and they got within a few feet of the thing and then backed up again. Um, this went on into the wee hours of the morning, and uh, at a certain point, uh, a senior non-commissioned individual, that would have been Sergeant Ball, started to go around the circle slowly and tap out like every third guy, indicating that they should withdraw and head back to the staging area. And Larry was in like the second to last group to be tapped out. And when he got back to that point where the forest meets the field, he stopped and turned around again and fixed the whole thing in his mind, the craft, the beings, the remaining men, uh, the officer. And then uh, went back to the staging area up the road um, the men were put back in vehicles. They were told not to discuss this uh, with each other, with anyone. Uh, you know, some of them did. They were quieted. Um, they were very shaken up. They did not feel good. Uh, Larry said he had a decidedly metallic taste in his mouth. His eyes felt dry and kind of clicked when he blinked. Um, they're back, uh, you know, in the um, uh, mess hall uh, about dawn and then go back to their billets, being told that they will uh, be debriefed on this later. I can't imagine anybody sleeping. Larry certainly didn't. Um, later that morning, he went to call his mother to tell her about this, completely against orders, and he's the first to say that. He's particularly close to his mom, had had a rather dramatic UFO incident with her several years before. Uh, Joanne Warren, who's a great woman, um, and uh, nobody you'd ever want to tangle with in terms of saying you're not telling the truth. I think she's terrific. Um, was home in upstate New York when Larry called her. Larry had a witness with him, um, Greg Batram, who is referred to in the book on a number of occasions and who has confirmed this. And Joanne had a witness, an old friend of hers who I've spoken to, um, and Larry called and essentially said words to the effect of, Mom, you're never going to believe what happened last night. We had a UFO land and base and blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know is speaking to dead air. Um, I wanted to ask you about that, actually. Um, yeah. Do you think that's what started the uh, 
the harassment that happened to him on the base after that? I'm pretty sure that had a lot to do with it. He identified himself that very first day yeah. as a potential troublemaker, and um, he he is a very interesting guy in that uh, sometimes you know curiosity overwhelms fear, or in the case of classic whistleblowers, and he is one in the Karen Silkwood model. Um, Perceiving that something has been done absolutely wrong or unethically or inappropriately or in some way that, you know, the man is um, on your case, um, you'll go against it even at the risk of your life and even though it may make your life miserable. Um, and Larry is that kind of guy. Uh, so he then reconnects with the operator and, you know, goes into a huff. I was just cut off on a transatlantic call. And this is a regular, you know, British telephone uh, personnel. And she says, sir, are you calling from the base? And he says, yes. And she says, well, then you were cut off from within the base. And um, as I recall, he hangs up the phone, looks at Greg and says, I'm fucked. And they walk back to the billet, and he sits in his room and basically waits for somebody to get on his case. Um, it's not long before he is called down to the base law enforcement office. And um, there's an officer there who says, you know, Airman, you were told not to discuss this, and yet you made a call this morning and did just that. And Larry looked him in the eyes and absolutely untruthfully said, no, sir, I did not. And the officer said, yes, you did. Larry said, I did not. The officer opens the lower drawer of his desk where there's a big old reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, <laughs> and he plays in the conversation. <laughs> and then, without making a big scene or anything, says, I know you're under a lot of stress. Uh, what you saw is very upsetting and unusual, and, you know, I'm not going to throw the book at you, but I can't just let this go. So, um you have a choice, we'll either bust you a rank or, um, you know, fine you a certain amount of money and take it out of your pay and increments. And Larry felt it would take him years to get back to that rank, or a long time anyway, and so he took the um, uh, the penalty, the financial penalty. And interestingly, it was, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars, but whatever it was, when he left the service, he still had like 95 bucks and change that was um, had not been paid, and that came back in kind of an interesting way later. Uh, later that day, he and other men were debriefed, and you remember the debriefing is rather dramatic. Um, for the record, they were not debriefed by any Air Force personnel at all. There were three men. Two of them were in suits, and doing our homework later, we learned that they were with the field arm of the National Security Agency. The military individual was a naval intelligence officer. And Navy intelligence threads its way through the entire history of the UFO cover-up. Yeah. Um, we are convinced that these men, uh, and these were all about the same rank, men that Larry had been out in the field with the night before primarily, um, were told what we would call disinformation. And disinformation is a very specific term, and it means a mixture of actual, factual, real information and completely false, invented information that has been put together to produce a certain purpose. In this case, maybe to intimidate, to overwhelm, to upset, to confuse, whatever. But they were told certain things. Um, whether or not they were true, I have no idea. But among the things they were told is that 
what they had seen the night before was in fact representative of another intelligence uh, possessing advanced technology, not of this Earth, that had been coming and going with impunity since, quote-unquote, or close on, longer than you boys have been alive. And that we, you know, uh, the Air Force, the military, the Western world, whatever you want to put there, have been trying to work out a way to go public with this information. It was still probably a long way off, and until then, you are not to talk about this. Um, you are now essentially part of the national security apparatus of America and the Western world. And that um, if you were to violate this, you would be in some pretty deep shit. Uh, the men were told that their security clearances had been upped. That was not a promotion. That was a way of uh, prosecuting them uh, at a higher level if they did break security. And um, they were shown a series of films, um, all spliced together, um, most of which were wing camera footage from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, all including UFO footage uh, in context. And the last piece of footage was shot on the moon, or was filmed um, to suggest that it was shot on the moon. Uh, of seeing an astronaut and UFOs as well. Um, when it was over, um, they were told they could leave. A question was asked, I believe by Larry, what happens if you know we do talk about this? And one of the guys, one of the uh, NSA guys, um, again, field arm of the NSA, uh, said with not quite a smile, but you know, was he serious? Who knows? He was. Uh, he said to the men there, quote-unquote, bullets are cheap. Uh, I should stress here that I have had that quote confirmed to me by three, four, five men that were in the room. Um, so it's not just uh, an invented phrase. Uh, one of the men in the room was under particular stress. Uh, he was a southerner. Um, I think his, his nickname was Alabama. Uh, he went into that um, debriefing with a Bible, and Larry said he was kind of you could hear him through most of the thing. It sounded at first like a hum or a mantra and realized he's probably praying to himself. But um, this enters into the story in that not long afterwards, this man went AWOL, uh, was met, I think, when he landed in Chicago by FBI who put him right on the next plane. Uh, he was returned to the base, returned to active service, to the best of our knowledge, not given any counseling, given a loaded weapon and um, blew his brains out on the tarmac uh, not long after, uh, after reporting and he couldn't take it anymore. And Larry and uh, the other man he was with were the first to find him. Oh, man. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say, and Larry will back me up on this, that this is really what radicalized and galvanized him. Sure, he was curious. Yes, he had a previous non-standard experiences in life, uh, and at least one with his mom, but this man was now dead. And that is sort of the sweep of the three days. Wow, yeah, that's... <laughs> but as you know, it brings us to an almost more compelling or equally compelling part of the story, which is that that fourth night, the night after the incident, um, the evening of that day that they had the debriefing, Larry, Adrian, other men um, were told that the debriefing would continue and to, in Larry's case, be out in front of his um, billet... Um, his barracks at uh, 8 o'clock at night to meet with and continue uh, answering questions or whatever. 
uh, a late model uh, black American vehicle pulled up. There were two men in suits. Uh, I got out of the driver's side. Are you Warren? Yes. Uh, can I see some ID? Larry being Larry basically said to the guy, let me see some of your ID. The guy did not like that. And at this point, Larry's memories were for years um, a bit spotty. He had a conscious memory, but it would drop off and come back. And it was not until the 1990s when uh, he did a regressive hypnosis session with Bud Hopkins that uh, the transcript is included in the book. And I witnessed the session. I've witnessed many regressive hypnoses. I never saw one like this. Um, he was a kid again and going through this. And at that point, when that man gets out of the car, the other man comes around the side raises his hand, and Larry is sprayed with an aerosol container and goes down. Um, temporarily blinded, his nose is running, he's having trouble breathing, he does not have real control of his motor functions, he's thrown in the back seat. And at that point, he disappears for uh, a day, a day and a half. Um, men who ask are told he's on, quote-unquote, emergency leave. He is taken to a huge holding area in a facility below the Twin Base complex where he and others are subjected to um, programming, uh, to uh, mentally destabilizing techniques, to setting up a scenario where they are led to believe that this area is manned by humans and non-humans, which I feel is uh, an invention, that this was... Uh, you know, they were mentally manipulated. Yeah. Um, and he is released before New Year's and um, makes it his business uh, as well as he can to try to put the stories together of some of the other men. Of course, this is all now extremely on the quiet. Um, sometime later, he is uh, put on sort of stenography um, office work kind of thing and is caught going through a filing cabinet that he's not authorized to, he's obsessed. He wants to know what yeah. happened. Yeah. Ultimately, um, he receives his honorable discharge and leaves the service in full-blown post-traumatic stress. Um, and it's not until 1982, he leaves the year before, that he goes to um, a police UFO investigator who, interestingly, was um, uh, at least an acquaintance um, of Pete Mazzola, who was one of my mentors, um, who is a police lieutenant in Coventry, Connecticut, and a UFO investigator, Larry Fawcett, who's co-author of uh, a UFO classic called Clear Intent, written in the 70s. And Larry Warren gives Fawcett and his small team of investigators, including a, uh, uh, a legally trained individual who institutes Freedom of Information Act action, using only information, location, names, dates, uh, times, etc., that Warren has given him. And that results the following year in the result of the so-called HALT memo, the one-page uh, report, uh, which um, is sort of a compression of the three nights into one incident that the deputy base commander wrote up um, several weeks after the fact. And that sits uh, quietly for the next years until... It is released. A copy is, uh, as a courtesy, sent to British investigators who uh, get the story to a national tabloid, um, and the story explodes um, as a news story in October of 83 with Larry uh, having been assigned a pseudonym. And that's the point where 
the story becomes public knowledge. Um, so that is basically the three nights plus of the actual event. But as you know, the book itself sweeps across decades. Oh, yeah. And, you know, focuses in, on uh, the long-term investigation and the impact this has on the individual. So uh, that sort of brings us up to the moment. Okay. Um, wow, that was detailed. But it was amazing. It was like, you're not, you're not going to get a better, uh, a better recount of the Bat Water story than that. <laughs> so, um, all right, let me, uh, let me take a look at what I got here. Um, well, it seems like when Larry first decides to come forward, he's, uh, he's sort of caught, there's some dueling researchers. There's a lot of turf wars yeah. going on. Especially what are you right? The UK researchers and, uh, and, and Larry Fawcett. Yeah. And the people that he's working with. Yeah. Uh, what, how's, how does Larry deal with that, um, sort of being caught in the middle of that? Um, as he said, like a trained monkey, he didn't know what to do. Uh, he just wanted to get the story out. Um, but it's a sad fact of human nature that even when you are an advocate for a cause, um, you sometimes depersonalize people and you see them as cases or, you know, yeah, pieces of a puzzle. And it's something I have trained myself to never do. Um, these are human beings, and many of them in fairly delicate circumstances after life-changing and shattering events. So he is manipulated and jerked around a bit, um, ultimately uh, kind of, you know, becomes his own person on this and goes forward. Being an in-your-face kind of guy and not backing down from the story, and a thing which was used to um, suggest that he was not telling the truth, when he first came forward, he did not dare tell the whole thing. And it was not until later that he did. He also did something with me, which um, at the time, had he not done it, I would have walked away because I would not have wanted to get involved in it. Um, he, in the case of Adrian, who uh, had a similar experience to his, uh, stood next to him, uh, Adrian was not interested in going forward directly, but was encouraging to Larry to do it and said, you can take part of my experience and say it's yours. It's not really a lie because it happened to me. And so that combination of this happened to me and then saying, but more happened to me several years later, and that a guy I know could have been me or it happened to me, but it really happened to a guy I know. Yeah combined with his very um, non, you know, uh, he, he's just a tough character, and, you know, he's not, um, uh, he stakes out a position and he holds it, and he'll get in your face and um, he's in a rage. Um, so he was branded a controversial witness, and I guess he was in that sense. Um, He's a very courageous witness, but nobody else had wanted to come forward. And indeed, he was not one of the first guys to come forward. He was the first. And now there are quite a number who have come forward. And in uh, the updated version of Left at Eastgate, which I'm pleased to say will be out in December, um, we have statements from other men who were involved backing up um, our characterizations of them in the book and adding more to the picture of what they knew Oh, nice. Yeah, and very exciting. I'm very yeah. proud of that part. We've got quite a group of contributors for uh, the revised version. Um, 
But yeah, um, he um, then became his own person. I had heard about this, I guess, in early 84. Again, the case had broken publicly in 83 in Britain, but by 84, early 84, most of us that were into this in the States had heard about this so-called UFO event in Great Britain. But it wasn't until um, 84 that we actually ran into each other several years before we really connected. This would have been at the um, in Westchester at a town meeting uh, where the um, there were tremendous UFO flights over Westchester, New York, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of well, probably thousands of people saw it, but hundreds were willing to come forward, regular citizens, and uh, we met for um, quite a, a lengthy um, series of discussions and statements um, and. Uh, um, explanations or at least encouragements of people coming forward on this um, in high school in Westchester. Um, and at a break, I went outside for a cigarette, and there was a kind of a knot of people and made my way up to it with my friends. And in the middle was this guy, this guy who we had heard about, um, telling part of his story. And I waded in and heard him out and, you know, kind of was part of one of those people that, you know, shook his hand, said thank you. And... I thought he was pretty courageous. I also thought, you know, if he was a liar, he was the best. It seemed absolutely sincere. But I also thought he must be a bit naive because, you know, what happens to people that do this? This is pretty reckless. You're just coming forward and saying, yeah, when I was in the military, I yeah. and on and on. Yeah. And it wasn't until um, 87, though, that we really met and connected um, at a conference in Washington where we heard each other speak and... Uh, kind of, you know, buttonholed each other the next day in the hallway and, um, you know, chatted and made a, uh, a decision to continue our talk and um, did and uh, things went on from there. Now, at some point when he first came forward, he, he used the alias Art Wallace? That was a alias that Larry Fawcett assigned him. Oh. And... Um, Larry said, you know, we want to protect your, you know, security here and your privacy, which I'm sure was true. But it was also a very theatrical device that made it sound much more undercover and cloak and daggery. And um, Larry Warren was never very comfortable with this. But for the initial first months and into um, 84, he was, you know, speaking under the name of Art Wallace and then dumped it and since then has never spoken under any name but his own. Yeah, when did he drop it? Because in, in the book, it's sort of like... Um, I guess, yeah, we don't say when that happened. Uh, you know what? I think it was in later 84. Um, but you know what? Yeah, I, I'm as sure as I can be it was in 84. Um, if not, it would have had to have been shortly after. Uh, certainly by the time we met in 87, he was fully under his own name. But I think it was 84. It didn't last long. And then... at. Uh, like you said, it came out in the U.S. a little bit. Um, there was a couple of TV segments on it, right? Uh, CNN and Unsolved Mysteries. Well, um, CNN, which actually was born in 1984, uh, Ted Turner, who's quite a guy, um, developed an interest in this case and made the incident the subject of a series of CNN's very first special reports. And I know through Chuck DeCaro, who at the time... Uh, was CNN's um, military and technology reporter and former Green Beret, military background, tough guy, great reporter. 
um, that he was the chief investigator assigned to the case and that he had been authorized to spend over $200,000 of Ted Turner's money, plenty of money now, but even more then. Uh, They hit the wall with the Air Force. Um, He had plenty of contacts within defense and um, within the military, used them all. Um, I think at one point CNN had prepared a list of 20 questions that they submitted to the Air Force. The Air Force answered them, sent them back, and they caught them in either I don't know, either 15, 16, or 17 lies out of the 20. Um, Chuck ultimately um, lost his job in part because of pushing a little too hard, and it was some years before he kind of came back into the field. Um, I spent time with him as well, and there's a a wonderful interview with Chuck Inleft at Eastgate, but um, that was in 84. It was some years later trying to remember when, maybe 87 or so, that Unsolved Mysteries did a segment on Bent Waters, and it was the first of what is now many, many television treatments or partial treatments um, here and in the UK, as well as in other countries. Uh, the most recent known one, um, let's see, there's, I think, two or so that date from the UK in the last couple of years. They just keep popping up. Oh, yeah. And in... Uh, 2002, um, the Sci-Fi Channel did an outstanding one that's um, without commercials, 90 minutes. Oh, wow. Um, that will be shown again in rotation in December on the channel. And I can tell you now, and this is sort of, um, you got a scoop here because the word isn't out on it, that um, a documentary house called Towers Productions in Chicago, uh, was commissioned some months ago um, by the Sci-Fi Channel. No, I'm sorry, by the History Channel to do a brand new one-hour okay. documentary. And I've just completed working as a consultant on that and um, helped set them up with different witnesses and information and documents and things. Um, Larry was filmed again on location um, in Suffolk last month. I was interviewed in New York. And I'm very proud to say that the History Channel will be broadcasting that uh, in December for the first time. Awesome. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But there have been an awful lot of treatments on it and partial treatments, some of them as good as they could, other ones that were just screwy and goofy and almost insulting, other ones that were extremely uneven, and that's the nature of the beast. Yeah. Um, all right, it's sort of a two-part question, I guess. Um uh, first, let's uh, Adrian Bastinza. He's he's really uh, only featured in anecdotes and in that one um, transcript. Did you talk to him while you were making the book at all, or since, or have you been in contact with him, or is he pretty much in like not into this? Um, Adrian's an interesting case. Um, early on, I I spoke to John Burroughs, who was involved in the first night. Spoken to other witnesses. Um, Adrian made it clear through channels that he was not interested in adding to what he had already said. But since then, and this would have been in the later 80s, um, but since then, he has been more forthcoming. And part of Adrian's hesitancy, from what I understand with all due respect, is that he has worked um, in border uh, patrol uh, position um, in enforcement in a government job for quite a number of years. Um, also, uh, 
his family was very upset that he had gone through this and was not interested in causing them any more emotional distress. Uh, there is some new information from him in the sci-fi documentary, and um, there is some added information on him, him confirming aspects of this, including uh, the machine in the field and being with Larry and all that, as well as a letter that he wrote to Larry, which I quote from uh, in the updated and revised version of Left at Escape that oh, great. he out late this year. Awesome. So we do have some more information from him. All right, and now what about Larry Fawcett? Because he's he's kind of a big part of the beginning of the book when yeah. uh, he sort of is is um is Larry Warren's conduit into the UFO field, but then he sort of drops off. And and um, I've only really been in the field now for like the last three, four, five years, or so yeah. I haven't heard much about him. And he, has has Larry Fawcett dropped out of the UFO field, or is he still active doing researches? Well, that's a good question, Tim. Um, he retired from uh, the. Um, Coventry um, Police Department quite a number of years ago, uh, moved out of Connecticut, moved down to Florida. I've been in touch with them not in several years, but we had, were back and forth fairly cordially uh, on and off irregularly. And if he's still investigating, he's doing it as a private citizen, and he's a retired guy living in Florida. But he's certainly um, still out there. Uh, I am not aware of you know him being active in the UFO field, but to the best of my knowledge, he is alive and well and very likely approachable somewhere in Florida. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so Larry, that's pretty much the uh, the backstory here. Now, Larry comes to you, and uh, this is when you sort of become a part of the book. Mm. Um, he comes to you to write the book, and you said you'd heard about the case before, and you obviously you knew who Larry Warren was. Mm. Um, what did you think? We were like, oh my, this is unbelievable. This guy, you know, he was there and now he wants to write the book. What were you thinking when he asked you to write the book? That's a great question. I was thinking a bunch of things. Um, again, I heard him speak in Washington and realized this was the guy I had, you know, met on the front lawn of that high school in uh, Westchester, New York, uh, four years earlier. And um, he was very passionate. He was cut off uh, also um, at this conference. Um, the excuse was, other speakers had run too long, so that had to chop the time out of his. And Larry um, has no love for many people in the UFO research community because he feels that they're even more duplicitous than skeptics because they, you know, say that they're on the side of the witness, but in fact, um, you know, they use you and dump you and uh, often distort what you've said. Um, so he was, his back was up. Um, we both had different motives. When I approached him, he approached me in the hallway that next day on Sunday in Washington, and we were at American University there, uh, 40th anniversary of the UFO Phenomena Conference, 1987 MUFON. Um, his angle was, I really, and, and you know, I don't believe in false modesty. I'm a good speaker, and um, um, I was good then. And he said to himself, that's the guy I want to write the book with. Um, I'm not exactly sure why still, but that was his judgment call. When I heard him speak, I was really clear that I wanted to do a really extended interview with this guy and would do what I had to to get it. Um, authentic military witnesses, and I'm now convinced beyond any doubt Larry is at the time, I was quite convinced, are very rare. Um, the guys that come forward and say, I want you all to know I'm speaking at the risk of my life, um, and, you know, I've had, you know, um, all these things happen to me, and these guys try to... Often, there's a lot of hot air there. 
Um, but he seemed like the goods, and I suggested that we get together again, and that he let me do an interview. And he said, how about next weekend? I said, sure. And he's married at the time. Uh, came down from Connecticut, slept on my couch. I had that recorder going for, Christ, I think six hours over the weekend. It was an amazing interview, Tim. And uh, he was answering most of my questions on other things. He would simply veer off and not answer it on other things. Um, he chose not to, but he was very forthcoming on almost everything. And some of the things I had done some homework on the case was um, had never gone into print. And I was thinking to myself, gosh, this is great. I've got a potential for a good article here that I can sell, and I'm breaking some new information. And what's this guy's angle? You know, he's not asking me for anything. I mean, he made it very clear at the start that whatever I, you know, wrote down that we, um, you know, drew from my taped interviews, I was free to use. He didn't want any money or anything. And toward the end of the weekend, uh, late that Sunday afternoon, I put him on the spot and said, what's really going on here? Why are you telling me all this and giving me this information? And he said, because I... I've wanted to write a book on this. I've been toying with it for several years, but I'm not a writer. I realize I need somebody else to do this with. And my first question was, well, why don't you get a writer? You know, I'm not really either. I've got a couple articles out, and I'm an investigator. You know, I'm serious. But he said, no, no, I think it's you, and I think part of the reason is because you can really feel what I'm going through because what I was speaking on, I was on a panel discussion with... Uh, among other people, Whitley Strieber, who had just come forward as a public figure who had had abduction experiences, who was one of my sisters, um, had grown up with abduction experiences. And uh, that is what got me into this work, um, nothing else, and deciding that we had had as kids. And he said, you know, I, I know this is, you know, woven into your family life, and, you know, you're serious about it, and you're not going to lie, and I think you're the guy. And here's my offer. Um, if you will write a book with me and let me say in my words my experience as I know it and, you know, put myself on the record, I will open my life to you completely. Um, you will have full carte blanche of every bit of paperwork on me. You can talk to my mom. You know, here's my high school report card. I'll give you everything I have on this, all my military records that I have, although I don't have many. Most of them are being held by the National Security Agency since 81, which is true, um, even the most innocuous. And if you can prove me a liar, do it. And it might be a weird kind of schizophrenic book if we go that route, but um, if you write this with me, we're 50% partners on everything that happens, and, you know, that's how I feel. And I thought to myself, this is not the kind of offer that somebody makes if they have something to hide. Yeah. And I was looking, frankly, for a serious writing project. I had done my share of articles at that point. I really was ready to get my teeth into something more. I had trained myself to be a pretty good investigative writer at that point. But I have to tell you, Tim, and I say it in the book, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, I thought, frankly, okay, this is cool. Um, I'll work a year or so. You know, we'll spend a couple of thousand dollars. We'll publish a book. We'll be rich and famous. <laughs> get some girlfriends, and this will be wonderful. Yeah. Um, the fact is that it was nothing like that. Um, between us, I think we returned. To, oh, and 
then shortly after he suggested that we go back to England, I thought, wow, go to England too, that's totally cool. Yeah, yeah. He even offered to pick up the airfare, and I thought, well, that's over the top. <laughs> and, you know, some months later we did do that after I'd done a lot of armchair research over the preceding months. But um, that's what I thought I was in for, and instead I was in for something that ate up almost a decade of my life, shattered a lot of my peace of mind and security, uh, bankrupted Larry, essentially bankrupted me. We spent between us over $100,000, oh, wow. vaporized our savings. I think we returned to England between us, working on the book 15 times. Whew. It was madness, and that obsession bug bit me, especially with the wrongs that had been done to these men and the impact on their lives. It weighed on me at least equally as much as, you know, my fascination with these other intelligences and what's the real truth here. Um, but that was what got me going. And again, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I'll say it right now, had I known what I was getting myself into, you would not have been reading that book because I wouldn't have written it. Really? So, yep, I would not have written it. Wow. I mean, I'm real proud that I did now. And in many ways, it's opened my life in some wonderful ways. But um, met terrific people. I've had an opportunity to travel a lot more than um, I had previously and uh, had some wonderful adventures and things. But um, it scared the crap out of me. I was working with somebody who was um, really, really uh, the angriest person I've ever met in my life, who... Um, was full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder for some of that time and not a pleasant person to be around at all. But I never took it personally, and, you know, even Larry, at his most difficult, I was able to see past that and understand that this was a guy who had been very badly hurt and lied to and um, abused, so to say, and that something had happened to him when he was in the service that he was completely obsessed with, and there was no question about that. And what he wanted was answers, and I ultimately was the guy that helped him figure out some of the answers. That does it for this week's edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 1. Thanks to Peter Robbins for stopping by. You can find contact information for Peter at banalofamerica.com. And, of course, you can find a host of other audio interviews and fantastic esoteric tidbits at banalofamerica.com www.binnallofamerica.com I want to thank Leslie and Chiron of binnallofamerica.com for your continued support and help with the audio series. And of course, I want to thank all the listeners out there who have been downloading and now streaming and listening to Binall of America Audio Season 1 and our predecessor, Binall of America Audio, the X-Conference Sessions. If you haven't got a chance to stop by binallofamerica.com and listen to those, I highly suggest you check them out. Next week, part two of two with Peter Robbins. We're going to talk even more extensively on Left at East Gate, plus discussion on Peter's trip to Japan and what Japanese ufology is like. Also a little bit on Chinese ufology, some on the women in ufology, and uh, a lengthy discussion on the internet and ufology, as Peter has seen the evolution of ufology on the internet and can give us his take on what that was like. So all that and tons more next week on Banal of America Audio Season 1, plus we'll have some names released for future editions of Banal of America Audio. I hope you stop by and check it out. I hope you enjoyed this week's interview, and until you hear from me next week, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim Banal saying so long.